Today on Students Over Systems, we're focusing on the pernicious influence of teachers' unions. Paul Zimmerman with the Defense of Freedom Institute joins us to discuss teacher unions accountability. Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we typically talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, however, we're focusing on the entities that cause the most harm in public education and do everything in their power to trap students in failing schools, and that's the teachers' unions. For this important conversation, we're joined by Paul Zimmerman. Paul leads the Defense of Freedom Institute's Teacher Unions Accountability Project. He previously served as counsel at the U.S. Department of Commerce and held a variety of positions with the Federalist Society. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jenny. Well, as I mentioned, we typically discuss school choice, education freedom on students over systems. We're celebrating all the victories that are happening this year, and we're talking through the the 30 years of school choice history. Um, And we find episode after episode, the teachers unions are frequently mentioned uh, with both of the teachers unions, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Associations meeting this summer. We wanted to bring you on to discuss the role that teachers unions play in K-12 education. And uh, we appreciate learning more about the work that you're doing at DFI, Defensive Freedom Institute. So let's start with a product that you have created, The Corrupt Bargain, how unions use collective bargaining to impose their political agendas on schools. What was the the goal of that publication? So what we really wanted to do with that publication uh, is take a look at the collective bargaining agreements uh, that uh, teacher unions agree with uh, public K through 12 local school districts Uh, and take a look at what those agreements actually say. What are teacher unions actually trying to accomplish uh, through those agreements? Um, And what we found was that in some of the most heavily unionized school districts uh, throughout the country and some of the biggest school districts throughout the country, uh, those unions are really using those collective bargaining agreements uh, to advance uh, a radical ideological agenda Uh, when it comes to uh, indoctrinating students into uh, woke principles, when it comes to uh, when it comes to school discipline uh, methods, uh, ensuring that the school district uh, disciplines people uh, and students uh, differently based on on race. And so we found a lot of these uh, provisions in some of the largest school districts. Uh, We published a a report on that, just spotlighting uh, uh, some of those really troubling uh, provisions. These are not parts of their contract that you would assume would be in these collective bargaining agreements, which would relate to salary, of course, and benefits of uh, the teachers involved. But some of them are really, including the disciplinary uh, provisions uh, on things like restorative justice, uh, they do a disservice uh, to teachers. So we were really uh, uh, disappointed, but perhaps not uh, surprised uh, uh, to find some of these uh, provisions in these collective bargaining agreements. 
Well, many parents and community members might be surprised. They might hear about their local teachers union striking and they assume it's because, well, the teachers are underpaid, of course, and so they must be striking in order to ensure that their salaries are increased. But what you mentioned in the report is that these collective agreements can span hundreds of pages, contain nearly impenetrable jargon, evade electoral accountability, and effectively impose leftist policy goals on school systems at a matter of con- as a matter of contract. Let's start with the beginning there. Span hundreds of pages. That's definitely more than just their salaries that's being negotiated there. Um, Can you walk us through a collective bargaining process that would lead to a product that's this huge? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I would raise uh, the Minneapolis uh, Teachers Union collective bargaining process uh, with that school district. Uh, where essentially the uh, teachers union used uh, a strike uh, and a time without an agreement uh, to negotiate a deal that was reached at about three o'clock in the morning uh, that imposed duties on the district uh, to uh, to fire white teachers uh, prior to firing teachers of color uh, and provided other benefits uh, to employees of color in those school district in that school district uh, that uh, that white teachers didn't have access to. So, I mean, I think teachers are exercising leverage uh, when their contract runs out. We've seen uh, uh, various contracts uh, coming to an end recently in Los Angeles and New York. And really, the people in those districts need to pay attention to the uh, negotiation process uh, in those districts uh, to ensure that these uh, kind of woke, uh, you know, progressive ideological provisions aren't taking precedence over just simple salary and benefits. Uh, these these uh, agreements spanning hundreds of pages. I know that you know they they know that parents don't have time to just parse uh, these like legalese uh, provisions uh, and take a look at what's really happening there. Uh, but uh, we tried to do that some in our report. Uh, we hope that uh, that it encourages parents uh, and teachers, uh, to be honest, across the country to really look into uh, the agreements that their unions are striking with the school districts. Right. And you don't just give that Minneapolis example. You have basically pages of examples from school districts and collective bargaining agreements from around the country that are are very similar. Let's talk a little bit more about the discipline provisions that you had referenced and um, what you're talking about there, particularly in a time when everyone is concerned about um, just how unsafe schools are, when community members, parents, and of course, teachers are concerned about physical assaults on teachers happening in schools and certainly the violence that breaks out between students in schools. Um, These contracts are are setting everyone up for failure. And you talked about how um, that they put both teachers and students in danger by replacing traditional disciplinary measures uh, with policies that emphasize dialogue and understanding. What is this? What's happening when it comes to school discipline in, in these bargaining agreements? Well, I, I would do a brief history of this. I think it goes back uh, at least to the Obama administration, uh, where the Obama Department of Education uh, uh, looked at uh, school disciplinary data and decided that uh, schools were uh, uh, the outcomes of the discipline in uh, K through 12 public schools wasn't being meted out uh, on an equal basis uh, between races, and so they went after. Uh, school districts with uh, with guidance uh, to tell them, hey, you have to have equal outcomes in your uh, disciplinary uh, techniques. And I think 
Uh, this is uh, essentially in line with that, uh, the restorative justice uh, principles. It's really a way of uh, helping everyone avoid, you know, accountability uh, for their uh, for their discipline problems. Uh, and and uh, essentially what it is, is not disciplining people, not removing students from their classroom when they misbehave. Uh, and not removing students from school based on very serious uh, allegations. And so I think the uh, purpose of this uh, is to try to kind of uh, equalize uh, disciplinary outcomes uh, across races, which I don't think is really an appropriate thing for a uh, government entity to be good to be doing. I, I think a lot of people would agree with me. Um, and obviously the effects are clear. I mean, if you don't remove a disruptive student from the classroom, the other students suffer. If you don't remove a disruptive student from the classroom, uh, teachers have a harder time actually uh, teaching the students uh, who want to learn uh, and teachers are put in danger in some cases as we've seen uh, kind of an epidemic of violence uh, across school systems. Um, so I think uh, this uh, disciplinary model uh, is not uh, helping teachers. And it's just another example of teachers unions not really being representative of the average, you know, teacher in a classroom. It's not, and, and definitely not being like a student's friend uh, uh, when it comes to the policies that per they're pursuing. Well, something that's important to us at IWF is to emphasize and expose the role of the national teachers union. So it might not even be that the local teachers union is as um, ideologically captured as some of the entities in our country, but the national teachers unions, the NEA, the AFT, and the activists that uh, create the business items and the resolutions that the unions vote on each year are 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 truly left and progressive and um, definitely not representing the, the views of the majority of teachers. So let's talk about how this happens. Like what is the role of the national teachers unions when it comes to the collective bargaining language? So I, I would say that the local unions are really driven by the priorities of the national unions as, as announced at their, uh, annual meetings. And listen, I mean, this, uh, this, the resolutions, uh, new business items uh, at these meetings, I know the NEA just uh, completed its uh, annual meeting a, a few weeks ago. Uh, this is, this is not in line, uh, these progressive goals, uh, such as just abandoning, uh, abandoning teacher evaluations, abandoning, you know, uh, tests of whether students are actually learning things in classrooms, among other things, uh, these are not representative of your average teacher. They are not what parents uh, want and what students deserve uh, in classrooms. And so I think that these local uh, union chapters that come to these meetings and that push these, uh, 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 push these new business items, push these resolutions, they go back feeling emboldened. Uh, they, they feel like they're part of uh, a real ideological struggle on behalf of their national organizations. And then really the, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's really where you see um, the uh, unions affecting uh, students' opportunity to learn, students' opportunity to choose their school, whether it's a charter school, whether it's a public school or a private school. Um, it's really where these opportunities for, for students to learn are choked off at the local level with these collective bargaining agreements 
Uh, and also where, uh, where I think that there is a priority on secrecy and there's a priority on protecting teachers at all costs uh, in these collective bargaining agreements, uh, prioritizing kind of teachers being, you know, retained on staff over uh, information getting to parents, uh, students, and other teachers. Uh, I think that's where really uh, this problem uh, is, is largest. Yes. So before we turn to your very important report, Catching the Trash, I did want to ask you um, about your recommendation that parents review the collective bargains in place in their communities. You acknowledge that these are dense agreements. They're filled with bureaucratic gobbledygook. They're negotiated in the shadows without knowledge of the public. So uh, tell us how parents would find the documents and what specifically should they look for? Yeah. uh, So school districts keep these collective bargaining agreements on their website. I would just go to your local school district's website, go to an employment uh, section. Uh, You can even Google your school district plus uh, collective bargaining agreement, uh, and that should come up. Uh, I apologize for anyone who actually has to go through these things. They are very uh, dry uh, for the most part until you hit upon, um, you know, something that is, uh, that just doesn't belong in there. Um, but I think that everyone owes, owes it to their children if they have a, child, a, a student in the school system um, to look at, you know, what the, uh, what the teachers unions are actually trying to do uh, and to make sure um, that the school system is not promoting progressive politics uh, over the safety and uh, well-being of students in the system. Right. And historically, there would have been a local education beat reporter at the local paper covering and exposing this. We don't have that as much anymore. So that does put the responsibility on the parents to go and look into to what's happening and um, pull it out of the shadows, shine the light on these these local bargaining agreements. All right. So you wrote a, a report more recently called Catching the Trash, Holding Teachers Unions, School Districts and the U.S. Department of Education Accountable for the Epidemic of so- Sexual Abuse in Public Schools. And Paul, to be honest, like nobody really wants to talk about this, right? This is a really uncomfortable conversation, um, but we need to because what you found when you looked at data um, from the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights was that sexual violence in public K-12 schools more than tripled over um, about a nine-year period. Um, tell us a little bit more about that finding. What do you mean when you say it tripled? So uh, every school district uh, is required to enforce uh, a federal statute that most people have heard of called Title IX uh, when responding to sexual assault complaints and sexual abuse complaints uh, in their district. Um, And if the school district doesn't respond properly, uh, then students and parents have a right to file a complaint. Uh, with the Office for Civil Rights against uh, their school district. And that's something everyone should know. Uh, Between 2010 and 2019, the number of uh, sexual violence complaints filed with the Office for Civil Rights uh, more than tripled, uh, as as you referred to. Uh, And I would just pinpoint between the school years 2015 and 16 and uh, 2017 and 18, Uh, which are the uh, last years for which we have data uh, for the education department's uh, civil rights data collection. Incidents of sexual violence uh, in K-12 schools rose by 43% uh, to nearly 14,000 incidents. And incidents of uh, rape or attempted rape 
uh, rose by 74% uh, to uh, 685 uh, incidents. And that's a national survey of uh, at least 17,000 uh, uh, school districts uh, or schools across the country. Um, this is a disturbing trend. This is why we decided to really look into uh, the phenomenon and the epidemic of sexual abuse uh, in schools and really look at what's happening. Why, uh, why are schools failing to keep uh, students safe? And why is this uh, uh, epidemic kind of on the, on the rise? As well as, you know, what should each actor, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level, be doing about this? And so these are incidents that have been reported up through the chain to the district, to the state, to the federal government, um, because they weren't resolved at, at some point or addressed. So this likely underreports the extent of the issue, I would, I would think, which is extremely alarming. Uh, were you able to look at the data and determine which of these incidents were teachers abusing students versus just student to student abuse? So uh, not in this particular uh, data, uh, and that is actually a key drawback in the data right now that I uh, mentioned uh, in the report. Uh, we really need to know uh, to what extent is this student-on-student -student sexual violence, and to what extent is this employee-on-student uh, sexual violence, because I think those, those two are unacceptable uh, but they're a little different uh, in terms of, you know, what would you do about it? Um, so in the civil rights data collection, uh, the department uh, during the uh, Betsy DeVos uh, education department era uh, started to collect data on, all right, how many of these are actually employee on student sexual abuse allegations? And how many of these uh, it, it, it are, are incidents in which uh, teachers are allowed to quietly resign and move elsewhere uh, you know, rather than actually face an investigation. Uh, in the Biden administration, they tried to put a halt to those questions. They tried to, they tried to uh, ax those questions from the uh, CRDC um, until uh, a large public outcry uh, stopped them, uh, stopped the administration from doing that. So I think that's just indicative of something that we point out in the report, which is that I don't think that the when it comes to potentially ruffling the feathers of the teacher unions, I don't think that the uh, education department is really interested in doing that, even at the expense of uh, finding out more about uh, such a horrible uh, phenomenon that's happening across the uh, country. All right. So you called the report Catching the Trash, and you wrote that administrators choose to allow the abuser, the teacher, to operate in the shadows or, or quietly transfer the teacher to another school or district to find new victims and restart the cycle of abuse. Uh, tell us about some of the, these incidences um, in, in school districts happening around the country. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, one example that is uh, uh, particularly troubling uh, was pointed out in the Chicago Tribune's uh, Betrayed uh, series, which is just great. And everyone should check check that out. It's very uh, it, it, it's horrible uh, what they what they outlined happened in the Chicago public schools uh, uh, and what really continues to happen in those schools. Uh, but a teacher started out uh, in Wisconsin uh, got in trouble in mid-year, uh, had a conference with his union rep and uh, the principal of the school uh, who agreed to destroy all files uh, related to uh, the teacher's misconduct, never speak of it again, 
uh, never uh, re refer it to any future employer. Uh, a few years later, he pops up in the Chicago public schools at a school for uh, kids with uh, behavioral and emotional issues. Uh, he, according to the allegations uh, from students in his class, he invites them home with him to uh, watch movies in his bed. Uh, he allows them to access pornography on his computer. He strokes the, the uh, pants zipper uh, of one of his students. Um, and, uh, and, and after that, uh, after those allegations surfaced, uh, he was allowed to resign from that school. Uh, and the school uh, said that it wasn't going to say anything uh, negative about his record uh, in return for him just slipping away, uh, not making a big deal about getting, you know, terminated, removed from his position. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, he pops up again in the Florida schools, which receive uh, no information uh, on, on these things. This is happening uh, too much throughout the country. It's, it's called passing the trash. Uh, it, it is basically a function in which uh, not just teacher unions, but I just think the public school bureaucracy of which the teacher unions are a part, make it so hard to remove teachers that instead they're just allowed to slip away under allegations of sexual misconduct instead of being properly investigated and instead of the proper process being applied to them. Uh, and so we really need to look at this issue. I think people need to be aware of this issue and make their school districts aware of the issue throughout the country. So this horrible situation that you told us about, Wisconsin, Chicago, Florida, it's not so very unusual. Apparently, there was a 2018 study that found that a teacher accused of abuse is on average passed to three different school districts and could have up to 73 victims. So you're not talking about an anomaly or some sort of extreme example. You're talking about an average example of an abuser in the system. What is what is the role of the union? You you mentioned the the union rep helped uh, make it go away. I guess as far as the document trail, what else is the the union doing in this process? So we found that the union gets involved uh, in three different ways. The first way is uh, that when a teacher uh, gets accused of sexual misconduct, uh, when there's an investigation that's launched into that conduct. Uh, unions uh, um, represent that teacher in negotiating a non-disclosure agreement, uh, which is exactly what happened in the case that I was just talking about, Wisconsin, Chicago, Florida. Um, the second way in which these uh, unions are involved is similar in that they negotiate collective bargaining agreements uh, with school districts that basically prioritize secrecy uh, over student safety and if after a certain number of years, any allegations, uh, not just allegations, but findings of misconduct against teachers or investigations uh, that occur into teacher sexual misconduct uh, and the misconduct of other school employees as well, uh, simply get scrubbed uh, from personnel files. So no future employer is going to be able to find out about those. Um, and then the third way uh, that teachers unions get involved is at the state level. They wield such powerful influence among state lawmakers that they're able to veto any meaningful reforms uh, that would effectively deal with this passing the trash phenomenon and hold school administrators accountable if they simply try to sweep the problem under the rug and offer a positive recommendation to a teacher who is accused of sexual misconduct. Uh, rather than uh, properly investigating them and uh, doing this in return for the teacher just disappearing uh, and uh, resurfacing in a different school system. 
Well, Paul, let's have a frank conversation about why and how the unions have such powerful influence in many state legislatures. How did that come about? Well, I, uh, I think how it came, at, came about, I think that there's a lot of interesting literature on this, but the unions are being subsidized by local school districts. They're being subsidized uh, by state governments because uh, they get all sorts of benefits. They're allowed to draw teachers' salaries uh, directly from the schools uh, to fund their dues. Uh, they are uh, permitted meeting space in schools. Uh, they are uh, uh, permitted to take time off uh, while they're being paid a public salary to represent the union. Um, and so they get all of these dues uh, that the state really, you know, the state and local districts really help them get. And then they use that to basically perpetuate themselves. Uh, and essentially, I would call it a protection racket that teacher unions give the union money or the, the teachers and other school employees give the union money. And in return, the union uh, uh, agrees to basically protect them uh, both at the local level, but also at the state level from any kind of, uh, you know, attempts at reforming the system to provide accountability, uh, both in terms of bad performance, but also in terms of actual dangerous, you know, abusive uh, teachers who are out there. And look, I mean, I, I would be remiss to say that teacher unions are very different from the, the average rank and file teachers. I think by and large, uh, almost all teachers out there are trying to do a good job and are trying to do well by the students that they teach and try to promote a good future for them. Uh, but these teacher unions, uh, they are really about self-perpetuation. They are about, uh, about money, about the funding, about influencing policy at the state level uh, in order to continue to exist. So to kind of blur the line or, or to mistake uh, teacher unions for all of the teachers that they represent, I think is a huge mistake uh, and something that we really should stop doing. Well, there was much gnashing of, of teeth and lamentation at the recent National Education Association or NEA annual meeting that a handful of states are ending the process of automatically deducting the union dues. And, and so without that automatic deduction heading straight into the pockets of the teachers unions, they're going to have a harder time convincing teachers hey, we represent you. Give us your dues money. Sign up for this. Uh, so I have to say, I think that this is some of the good news coming out of the, the NEA meeting and, and uh, some of the good news coming out of the state legislative sessions. Let's not make it easy for unions to do all these things that we've been talking about here. Let's make them make the case to the average classroom teacher uh, that they're representing them. And likely they won't be able to do that in, in many cases. So last question, as we wrap up for the day, we typically ask our guests, what is the myth about education freedom or school choice that you'd like to tackle? But Paul, given your area of expertise, let's let's tackle the myth about teachers unions that bothers you the most and that you want to dispel today. I think that the myth uh, that I would like to dispel and that I, I, I think really needs to be dispelled is uh, when the teacher union bosses, both at the uh, National Education Association and the American Federation uh, for Teachers, say that teacher interests are the same always as uh, 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 teacher union interests are the same as uh, student interests, that they represent the students uh, just as much as they represent the uh, the progressive political agenda 
that they're really pursuing. That is a myth. Uh, I, I, I think they've shown at these meetings uh, that they are not prioritizing the interests of students uh, who are just seeking and who deserve an education uh, that is really quality um, and whether, you know, they can seek that at, at a charter school, they can seek that at a public school or a private school. Teacher unions do not want that. They don't have that interest uh, at heart. Uh, and so to say that teacher unions really represent the students, it's not true. As I said uh, before, teacher unions are really about uh, perpetuating their own interests. They're really about continuing their own funding stream uh, and really about expansion. Uh, I think that they're looking to not only represent employees uh, in public schools throughout the country, but also expand to higher education, to expand to uh, uh, other educational options such as charter schools. Uh, and if we allow that to happen, and if, if we as a society and if our governments allow that to happen, I think that uh, we're going to have a really tough time uh, educating our children in this country uh, and preparing people uh, for meaningful careers uh, and preparing them for life. Well, Paul, I definitely agree. And thank you so much for all that you're doing at the Teacher Union's Accountability Project. And thanks for talking with us here at Students Over Systems today. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. We hope listeners found today's conversation informative, if alarming. And if you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.